I want to share with you, uh, before I get into the message, that I'm, I ask you to pray with me as we continue to think about the future vision for our church, not tomorrow night, but the next Monday evening. I'm going to be laying out for our elders what I see as some next critical steps in the life of our church, and I would just like to encourage you to pray with me about that. Uh, I'm excited. There are some things that are going to be happening around Easter time and then some other brand new developments coming in September. And so I'm looking forward to soon. I'll be able to explain more about what I mean by that. There was a curious story in the Wall Street Journal that ran back in November. Uh, this reported a, about a man in, and I may not be saying this right, Cubatao, Brazil, and his name is Ivanio Batista da Silva. He grew up as a shoeshine boy, but he became a successful businessman, and uh, he has built himself a castle-like house, complete with a throne and turrets, and he calls himself His Majesty Ivan I of Cubatao. I mean, that is taking being the king of your own castle to uh, a more literal level than people usually do. His wife says he sits on his throne with his sword in one hand and a beer in the other and leaves me in peace, so she's mostly okay with it. And he actually has fans who gather around his house just to kind of admire uh, his kingliness. Now, we might be amused uh, by a story like this, but we're not awed by it, by this level of pretending. I, I, get the ex I get the impression that he knows it's kind of a joke and he's got the money to do that and it's okay, but we're not, in, we're not in necessarily impressed. We're not in awe of this person because of the trappings he has around him and we certainly wouldn't expect any help from him even if we lived there nearby. Several years ago, J.B. Phillips wrote a book called Your God is Too Small. And many unbelievers and even some people who claim faith in Jesus actually have a very puny view of God in their minds. Or maybe they have a punitive view of God in their minds. They see Him as cruel. This problem is not an intellectual problem like math. If you could just get your equation right, you could end up with the right answer. It is a truth problem, but it's, it's, trust, it's a trusting the truth problem that is actual, actually the issue. And regardless of what we or anyone else thinks about what the Christian faith is about, the Bible is not a self-help book. It is what the Bible is about and what the Christian faith is about is about knowing God as He really is. And I realize, you know, everyone has, as they pray, maybe some phrases that they repeat more than any other thing. And I do a lot of writing in my praying, and um, 
I find myself saying this phrase or writing this phrase probably more than just about anything else, and it is this. There is no one else like you. What's in our minds when we think about who God is is the single most important thing about us. And so we're continuing in a series in Exodus. I preached up through chapter 15 and a couple of different series in the past. And my friends in the other coastal campuses had preached up through chapter 22 in a recent series, and I am choosing to sync up with them in chapter 23. I don't know how much you know or remember about the book of Exodus. It's the second book of the Bible, the second book of the five books of Moses, and it begins with the call of Moses, and it moves into him confronting Pharaoh and, and the plagues of Egypt uh, that were brought on Egypt as Pharaoh resisted releasing them, and eventually they, they have the exodus, and there's the scene of the parting of the Red Sea, and there's the institution of Passover, and then in chapter 19 is this incredible vision of the greatness and the glory of God that demonstrates the incredible distance between the holiness and the glory of God and His people. And then with that, that vision ringing in the people's ears in chapter 20, what we know is the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words are delivered. And then those next couple of chapters sort of begin to lay out the practical implications of those ten words. And then in the text we're looking at today, we see God sealing the covenant with His people through sacrifices and the blood, and, and, but in God saying to the people, you are mine. And there are implications there are critical implications for me and you. In fact, if you've, if, been, if you've been around a while or you've never heard me speak before, I always break messages down into a couple of key statements, key takeaways. And they always have to do with how does this, what does this mean for you now? So in other words, I don't, I don't stand up here to give history lessons and say, First Moses did this, and, and then Moses did that, and then he did this last thing. It's not really in the Bible, but most sermons have three points. You've probably figured that out. But I, my key takeaways are always, what does this mean now in your life? What, what can I, after living in this text for a few weeks, before God as I've studied this, what I hope to share with you is what can... What, can, what is the Holy Spirit expect of you and me? What, what do I share that is expected of me and expected of you based on this text? That's what we're doing here this morning. Getting at this question, how can we find the boldness to stand against whatever challenges will come our way? It's going to come through a big view of God. So first of all, I want you to see from Exodus 23, verses 20 through 33, the call on our lives to glorify God in our bodies. And by that, I don't, and that's, some of you will know that's a quote from 1 Corinthians, to glorify God in your body. But it's not a word about 
taking care of yourself physically. It, it involves that, but it's more about how is God calling you to follow him and to obey him in your real life, your real walking around life, as Eugene Peterson used to say. Well, let me get in. That's enough intro. Let me get into the text. Chapter 23, verse 20. This is God speaking to Moses and the people. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the to, to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water." And I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw you into confusion. All the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the Philist to the wilderness to the Euphrates, Euphrates, and I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Now, I could take the rest of the afternoon taking a deep dive into all of the particulars of that, and most of you would leave before I finished with that. So let me uh, just point out a couple of things to you. God says, I'm going to send an angel before you to guard you and to guide you into the promised land. And there's theological debate among scholars as to who this angel is. And I will, uh, I, without trying to dredge up all of that argument, based on the fact when it says, he will not pardon your transgressions, this presence, this being, I think is God in disguise. The, as theologian would say, the pre-incarnate presence of the Lord Jesus himself, because only God can forgive or choose not to forgive sins. But the greatest significance here that I want you to see is this language when he says, pay careful attention to him, because he will not forgive your disobedience. That seems like a harsh word that he will not forgive. 
but and then, and you think, well, wait, that doesn't seem to be the the whole message of the New Testament. There seems to be a distinction here. But notice this: there are some very clear and disturbing passages in the New Testament that also uh, have some pretty stiff warnings. In fact, if it wouldn't be much of a warning at all if if the explanation for that stern warning was really, look, is to say to someone, look, I, I see that you're, that you're caught up, you and I, we're caught up in sin and we're struggling with this, that, or the other, and you really shouldn't do that and you should stop if you can. But if, if you don't, God's going to forgive you anyway. That's, that's not the whole picture. And uh, in fact, as one commentator said, just kind of, I hope you hear this well and, and don't go out of here misquoting me on this. But I just thought this was a fascinating way to speak of this. But he says, when a responsible Christian sees someone else who's made a credible profession of faith, but who to all appearances acts in a way that is not at all in keeping with that profession, he, he or she cannot very well say, remember that God is with you no matter what. Sure, you're sinning and you ought to stop, but God will let go of you. God won't let go of you, so don't worry. That's not how warnings work. So listen to this. He says, rather, you should corner such people. And figuratively speaking, not literally, figuratively speaking, you pen them up against the wall. You tell them that they are within a hair width of falling into Satan's hands. And you slap them silly, dunk their heads in ice water, and scream in their ear. It is a dangerous thing to just willfully keep disobeying God. And, and we should take the warnings in Scripture seriously. And then there are some who would take a passage like this. All of those promises there in the middle where God says, if you obey, then I will do this and I will do that. I will go before you and there, there will be no sickness and there will be no miscarriages. There are ways that some pastors take that and would appear to me to seek to manipulate people to, to give more, that if you're just obedient, then God will do this. Those promises can't be taken out of context, and there's been no one ever who's actually been able to obey in the way this talks about, and, and the children of Israel didn't do that. Still, he clearly says to them, part of the reason why there's such a strong word about you have to make sure that these people, that you do not continue to live amongst these people because you cannot take up their practices. They will be a distraction to you. You shall not enter into covenant with them. God intends for his people to glorify him in their bodies. Or as Kevin DeYoung says in his book, The Hole in Our Holiness, is obedience what your church is known for? Is it what other Christians think of when they look at your life? Is it what you would want to be known for? I mean, words like creativity or relevant or world changer might sound better than plain old obedience. As 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 says, though, clearly... Very New Testament text. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. In Moses' time, there was the presence of God with them, the angel of God, 
to guard them, to protect them, to guide them to where they were going, and, and in some sense to enable them. From a New Testament perspective, if you have been born again, then not only is God with you, God is inside of you, in the presence of His Holy Spirit to guard you, to guide you, and to empower you for obedience. But He, he can be resisted. He can be frustrated. He can be quenched. And the warnings against disobedience are real. We do not belong to ourselves. I mean, that's, that's blasphemy to the culture of our time. If you have been saved, you are not your own. Your body, your mind, your time, your resources are not yours to just use however you decide. You belong to God, and you've been purchased with a price. So we're to constantly... This, how do you do this? You constantly remember that God Himself is in you. If you were hanging out with a friend the whole day, going on a long road trip, you wouldn't suddenly forget for hours on end that your friend is sitting right there beside you. The Holy Spirit lives in you and in me all the time. And so we need to cultivate being attentive to Him because it is possible to resist Him. And so we, that means that we creatively think about making obedience practical. Meaning that it's, it's about how we live in our own bodies. And the problem with all of this is that I can't do this. And you can't do this. Our attention comes and goes. We, that is, it is clear that we're called to obey. And there are there are warnings against disobedience. So, how do we resolve that issue? First of all, we're to glorify God in our bodies, but secondly then, we're to rest in the assurance Jesus offers and that was accomplished in His work on the cross. So look at the next eight verses. That, By the way, that first chunk of text, that's the longest one. The last two are a little shorter. Then God said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings, offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance 
with all these words. Here's what I want to point out to you from that chunk of text. Did you notice there at the beginning that there was, I mean, there's hundreds of thousands of people and the children of Israel. But only a few were invited up onto the mountain to worship from afar. And only Moses was invited to come on up and to come near. So that's one thing to notice there. And then two times in that chunk of text, it is said that Moses has heard the Word of God and he shares the Word of God to the people, not as just some religious exercise that they listen to and move on, but that, that God has... God is instituting a covenant with His people, but He has designs on their life. He, He has commands for them to follow. And so twice that text speaks of Moses giving the Word, and then twice the people say, we agree, we want this, we want to be in covenant with this God. We will hear and we will obey. And then there's that unusual language where Moses collects the blood from these offerings and not only does he collect it in a bowl at some peop- at some point which sounds so incredibly unusual to us the blood was was thrown on to the people in some sense what in the world is going on there That is God establishing a covenant with His people and saying to them, you are mine. This is going to sound like I'm veering into some other topic, but stay with me for a moment. I promise it's connected. There are a lot of couples in this country who live together before they get married. And it it makes sense on on the face of it. I mean, you wouldn't buy a car before test driving it. And in most cases, you wouldn't necessarily buy clothes without trying them on. So it it seems to make sense that shouldn't we try to live together for a while to see if we're compatible to live together? Now, aside from the fact that that that's deliberately going against what God says not to do, there's another aspect of this that relates to this text. And that is this. The element of entering into a sexual relationship outside of the covenant commitment of marriage introduces relational chemicals into the mix, if you will, that dramatically alters what it is. It's a completely different kind of thing. And so there's a sense when a couple tries to do that, tries to go against what God says, they are, they are still they're not, com- they're not really committed to one another. And so they are, um, there's a sense in which they're still performing. They're still trying to make sure that they're, they're acting and they're loving and they're doing what they do in such a way to try to hang on to something that they might lose. In a, in, in a marriage relationship, in, in the best cases, a person, once the commitment is there, they don't, 
They don't let themselves go, as we say. It's just that what they do in taking care of themselves and in loving their spouse well is not trying to keep something they could lose, but to, lo- to, but to bless someone they love. If you have entered into a relationship with Jesus... If you have trusted what Jesus has done on the cross to pay for your sin, you and I are absolutely called to obey. But the motivation for that obedience is not to perform, to hang on to something we could lose, but it is a, it's a love relationship to honor the one that we love. You see, we, the Christian life is not about following a set of rules. It's knowing and loving and obeying a person. And, and we learn to love. I might be saying this backwards. We learn to love what we worship, or we worship what we love, and we love what we find desirable and attractive. And so all of this exercise in seeking to see God for who He is is how love for God is awakened in our hearts. Because doing what honors God is not a white-knuckling, gritting-it-out, I-will-do-the-right-thing-if-it-kills-me sort of experience. But it's a response to the love and the glory of God. Hebrews 10.22 says, with a clear allusion back to our text, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We still sin, but our God's calling us to confess our sin is not to, to go back and redo the initial relationship with God, but it is, it is simply to, uh, to grieve with God over our sin, to see our sin the same way that God sees it, but to recognize that the relationship is not threatened. The warning is still real, and if we, if for a person who can just persist in sin and persist in sin willfully with no interest in repentance, that's, that's dangerous. Not that they, they're in danger of losing something they had, but that persistence in sin demonstrates that they may never have known God in the first place. So the warnings are serious to get our attention. Well, let me move on to the last part of the text. First of all, is um, to glorify God in our bodies. Obedience matters. But secondly, that we're to rest in the assurance that Jesus offers. The motivation for why we obey is, is really turned on its head. But finally, we're to see God on His terms. The last few verses in chapter 24 say this, Then, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. 
And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. This text reveals a lesser-known encounter where God enabled Moses and those few people with him to to not see God directly, but they were... They were able to see under God's feet, if it were. And they they have this this vision that is overwhelming. And the reason the text moves on immediately to say, and he, meaning God, did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The reason he said that is that God revealed himself to them in an an overwhelming way they rightly understood that no one could see God and live, yet they are able to see God in some sense, and yet God extended mercy to them and did not destroy them. He invited them to encounter Him in this way. And so then He invites Moses to come up and and receive these tablets of stone that, that God had written on. And then both both the people, the, the bulk of the people, and those few who go up on the mountain, and then Moses who actually goes up into the mountain, they all have this overwhelming spectacle of, of the display of the glory of God that went on. Um, and some some version some aspect of it for six days, and then and then there was that seventh day. But then Moses was gone for forty days. So there was this there was this spectacle that they couldn't possibly forget. That was not just in a flash, but went on and and on and on in such a way that they would they would never forget. Probably you've had some experiences in your life that were, that were overwhelming, some good, some bad, but things that you, you'll never forget. And we might think, man, if I, if I could just see God like they did, that, that, that would enable me to really trust God. That would enable me to you know, I, think, I bet I could really worship if I could have that kind of view of the glory of God. But listen to this. John chapter 1. 
verse 14 says, And the Word, speaking of Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That vision that God gave Moses and the people of Israel, recorded all the way back in the... looks really big and impressive. But the teaching of the whole Bible is this, that the gaze of God in Christ is a more powerful image than the glimpses that Moses had. As one commentator said, Jesus is the pinnacle of God's revealing Himself. Because the pinnacle is not those Ten Commandments. The pinnacle came in a person. The Word of God. John 14, 9. Later, Jesus talking to the disciples, He says, to, in a question, uh, Jesus said to them, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. We need to allow that wonder to sink in. We have a better deal than Moses and the people of Israel had through the vision of the Lord Jesus Christ contained for us in the New Testament as the Holy Spirit reveals Him to us that we might know Him and love Him. But, even more practical for me and you. Listen to, again, John speaking in 1 John 4.12 when he says, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. That text connects the love of God flowing through us to one another as another way we see and encounter God. And so by loving one another well, by church members making phone calls and writing notes of encouragement, or coming by to visit, or simply stopping to listen, or setting a meeting, a coffee to, to listen. We see God flowing through us and among us as His love moves through us. And so, it is one of the reasons why it is, it is just impossible for a person to see and encounter the wonder and the glory of God outside of a robust connection to a local church where the word of God is being preached and where people are encountering one another, encountering one another in person. And so those times when we are not feeling God's presence the way we want to, we're not going to be able to pull ourselves by our own bootsteps uh, on our own spiritually by sitting around thinking about deep thoughts of God. We're going to need to be engaged with a body of believers where someone's going to do what I'm doing and where they're seeking to live that out amongst them. But a step beyond that is that 
You don't have to wait for someone to do that for you. You experience a measure of that when you go first. When you are prompted to love and to love well. Paul David Tripp in his book simply titled All, A-W-E, All, says, Many people have talked to me about God in the middle of their difficulties. And he says, After listening to them, I have been struck that if I believed in the God they described, I wouldn't run to Him either. And I'd be in a panic We need to know God as the Word of God reveals Him, as He has chosen to reveal Himself to us most clearly and most obviously and most dramatically in the life and the teaching and the death and the burial and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And we are following Him. That's what we're about. Let's pray. Father, Please awaken us to the glory of who you are. That we don't just know you as the creator of everything that exists, although it's important that we know that and believe that. But that we know you as as God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who came to live the life we should have lived but didn't and died the death we deserve to die so that when we place our trust and our confidence in His work on the cross, that Your Holy Spirit comes and gives us a new heart that wants to know God and wants to obey God, however imperfect we do that, but in Your power and in Your strength. God, we pray that You would accomplish that in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.